Welcome to Gods to Ghost Volleyball and your host, Scott Bemke. Before we get started with our interview this week, I want to remind you that we do have a website, which is godstoghosts.com, and we also have a Facebook page, which is Gods to Ghost Volleyball, where you'll be able to keep up to date on everything that's going on in future interviews that we'll be doing here not too long down the road. Our interview this week features part one of our two-part interview with Larry Rundle. Larry began his indoor career playing for legendary UCLA Bruins coach Al Skates in 1965 at UCLA, where he won a USVBA Collegiate National Championship on that team before it became an NCAA sport in 1970. From there, Larry went on to compete indoors on our U.S. Olympic team and won the Pan Am Games in 1967 as a gold medalist, which helped them qualify for the 68 Olympics in Mexico City, where they competed and beat the Russians in the first round before Larry went down with an ankle injury. On the beach, Larry won 13 Opens over his career, including two Manhattan Beach Opens in 1968 with Henry Bergman in 1971 with Bob Clem. He was also inducted into the California Beach Volleyball Hall of Fame in 1994, the International Volleyball Hall of Fame in 1992, in the UCLA Hall of Fame in 1994. Let's get started with part one of Rags, Larry Rundle. All right, so tell us uh, about your athletic background and how your affinity for the sport of volleyball came around, Larry. Well, uh, I grew up in Santa Monica, and uh, the, the junior high school uh, that I played at, a small uh, school in Santa Monica called John Adams Junior High School, and uh, the coaches there were two coaches that I revered, learned to love and revere over the years, but they were great mentors to me as a, as a youngster going into, going into junior high school. Their name was Don Steer and Dave Heiser. They were both just wonderful people, great coaches, and uh, they both happened to be avid, avid beach volleyball players from Sorrento Beach and State Beach. And some of the other coaches there also played in beach doubles. Uh, Don McMahon was one of them, and they all played. And so uh, I grew up, every time I would go to the gym, uh, there was a volleyball net up. And uh, it was just natural that we played. And so I grew up playing there. And uh, I remember... uh, uh, every summer while I was young, uh, I would go to John Adams Junior High School from nine o'clock till five o'clock all day, and there was uh, kind of a kind of a hierarchy there. On one half of the gym, there was the three-on-three basketball court going, and then on the other half of the gym was a net 
where doubles was being played. So if you could, at the top of the pecking order was the three on three double, uh, three on three basketball. If you could win there, you could stay, kept on continuing to stay there. If you lost, you would usually go down to the, uh, the doubles court and play volleyball. And if you lost there, you went into the hallway and played ping pong. <laughs> so, so, that's, so that's how I spent my summers every day, you know, trying to stay on the basketball court as long as I could, or volleyball or ping pong. And, uh, uh, but uh, those two coaches uh, were the ones that uh, really got me, got me started. And I got where there was, you know, playing so much fog, uh, just indoor doubles, that I just grew up playing it. And, uh, one of one of the things that was kind of coincidental about my career is that I was so small, uh, you know, when I was young. I mean, I I tell people that uh, when I got my driver's license at age sixteen, it said on my driver's license five foot two, ninety five pounds. Wow, <laughs> that that was at age sixteen. So you can see how small I was, and so I learned to hit. I mean, Don Steer used to. When there weren't too many people in the gym, he would just he would just top, throw balls up for me at half court, and I would just try to spike them. If I could just try to get it in and just spin it into the back line, I would be thrilled. But he would spend you know half an hour, sometimes an hour, with just tossing balls and having me hit. And then when I finally got so that I could actually spike a ball, it was really thrilling to me. But the other thing about that was that I was so small that I, I really couldn't set the ball overhand. It was very difficult for me to do it, so I just started bumping everything. And uh, I got so that I was very proficient at bumping. And, and then when I get to UCLA in 1965, they changed the rules, so everybody had to bump, <laughs> bump the serve. You couldn't take serve overhand. And I said, hey, this is cool. <laughs> I, I'm the best bumper on the team. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that was pretty. Uh, that was pretty event for me. So, but those those coaches there at uh, at John Adams and and Santa Monica and playing uh, those those were the those were the guys I played with. And then I also during the summers also as I got a little older, I used to go to Lincoln Junior High School and play volleyball with my good buddy Larry Milliken. He and I used to have Donnie Brook matches uh, back and forth and he was he's Larry's a just a wonderful player and a great historian lived up in Santa Barbara now he's uh he's good pals with the uh, greatest volleyball journalist ever John Lee is he not oh yeah oh Larry's it yeah Larry and John they're terrific they're so much fun to talk talk with and they were both uh, very helpful Mike Larry was especially when uh, my daughter went to UTSB and set for the gauchos up there Oh yeah, Brooke Rundle was it not? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Kathy Kathy Gregory. When I interviewed her, I think mentioned something about her. Pretty good lineage. Mm-hmm. She came from pretty good stock, so that's good stuff. Well, she had a lot of <laughs> she had she had a lot of people ask me, you know, make sure you don't push push Brooke into volleyball, and I said, push her. She's pulling me. I'm not pushing her. Let's go, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I come home. She goes, "Daddy, can we go set?" Because <laughs> I put a when I lived when she grew up, we lived in in uh, in Westlake Village, and I put it. We had a big backyard, and I put in a sand volleyball court back there. And uh, you know, 
soon as I got home, she wanted to go out and practice set, setting. And so we set by the hour. <laughs> by the time she got to college, she was a damn good setter. Yeah. Wow. So, That's an awesome story. Now, Don Steer, he was all the, the high school football coach at Santa Monica High School, was he not? Yeah, that's correct. After, and his wife... After, uh, Patty yeah, Steer exactly. was a was a heck of a player and made uh, I think yeah. they made that Steer sportswear that all those guys were wearing for a while in the seventies I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don, yeah. Don was the, Don was my my coach and his wife was Patty Steer who was a you know who was a very very good player a very good beach player herself and and, and Don was a was the uh, was the coach and then he moved on to Santa Monica High School where he became the high school coach wow. and uh, one thing that's funny about Dave Heiser who is just a just a wonderful guy I don't know if you've ever I mean, you've had that name but he was a great coach but uh, I, we became friends uh, instantly and as I grew older and our relationship changed from me being a student and him being the coach to us being more friends it, it, it was a very funny story because in 1956, when I went to John Adams Junior High School, the uh, they used to have like a like a little mini decathlon, and they would put the the records for the decathlon up on the board in the office. And having your re- name by one of the school records was a really really big honor because you know there was your name printed. Right up there, you know, and and the events were like uh, uh, how many ba- how many minute how many baskets could you make in a minute? Uh, how many uh, chin-ups could you do? How many pull-ups? How many this and that? And one of them was how many consecutive free throws you could make. So in 1956, when I was just a, a my second year of junior high school, school uh, record was 11 consecutive, and that had. That had been held for something like ten years. So uh, I entered that that event, and I make six, and then I make seven in a row, eight, nine, ten, and on my eleventh, I choked and just dropped an air ball because I just, you know, it was just so tense making that one. And the coach just grabbed the ball right out of the air and said, "Don't worry, just just toss it to me." And he, threw it back to me to have started shooting again for my second attempt. Right. So the second the second, second attempt, I go, eight, nine, ten, and I hit the 11 to tie it up. I hit the 12 one to tie it up and made five more. And I, so I made 17 consecutive free throws to, to set the record, which stayed until 1998. From 1956 to 1998, that was the, that was the school record of consecutive free throws. And so now, in 1998, I get a registered letter in the mail, and I open it up, and it's from Dave Dave Heiser, who was my coach there, and it said, "Dear Mr. Dear Mr. Rundle, we regret to inform you <laughs> that your." <laughs> That your school record has been broken, <laughs> and then he went on to talk something. But I just remember opening that first line saying, "We regret to inform you." Yeah, right. <laughs> Those were, 
Hagen tells the story of practicing indoors at that John Adams uh, Middle School. He'd do that for six-man, you know, during the the fall and the winter or spring, and he he always has such an eye for talent. Like, he recognized Buzz Swartz when he was a young guy coming up, and he said he he saw this smallish, skinny kid playing doubles on one of the other courts and like recognize like that kid could be really good and when he'd bring ask who you were um to some of the other established indoor players that were playing there they're like ah he's too little or he's not gonna he's got skills but he's too little or what have you and von hagen's like "Uh uh-uh you just wait and watch and (laughs) sure enough uh he was right um do you remember seeing those volleyball gods over there when you were a young kid I absolutely remember. Uh, I absolutely remember Ronnie because Ronnie was, uh, you know, when I was at that period of time, Ronnie was a very well established player. I mean, I, I mean, I had started to know about the players and I knew about Ronnie, uh, and I, I would go over there and, and play in my usual whatever games I could get in. I played with a, a very a good, a dear friend of mine named Ronnie Snyder. Uh, who would play doubles with me, and uh, I would play against those guys. And the, the thing that I had, the thing that I could do uh, so much than all of the rest of them was that I could pass, you know, underhand pass, because that's what I grew up doing. Because I couldn't over, I couldn't set overhead. It, it was it, the ball was too big and it was too heavy for my uh, for my hands, and so I could really pass well. And remember, that was right when they were transitioning during that. 64 period right after right at the 64 olympics you know when they first found out that they couldn't pass, receive the serve overhand you had to bump it all the game that that they had all played up to that time was you pass everything overhand <laughs> so i was right at that transition where i had developed the skill which then became the required passing skill and so, yeah, but I used to play doubles, and Ronnie, I, I remember playing against Ronnie and being odd that I was getting to play on the same court with Ronnie Von Hagen. That was, uh, that was, that was really exciting for me at that time. I can imagine. Now, um, when you were going down to the beach, who were the established players that you were in awe of and really looked up to when you were coming up through the ranks, Larry? Well, I, you know, I, I didn't play a whole lot of beach volleyball. Uh, I my, my game was indoors. I mean, my whole focus, mostly of my career was indoors. But as I got, as I finally got to the beach and like uh, probably my senior year in college, I mean, there was, there, there was two guys. <laughs> and you heard their names. <laughs> and they put, and they played it, and they played at Sorrento Beach. And, I'm Hagen and Darth Vader. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, there was there were so many other players, but I mean, there was two guys. I mean, now I didn't, uh, you know, at sixty three and sixty four, I didn't, I didn't get to see Mike Bright or O'Hara or Selznick, and I didn't get to see those guys 
when they were competing at that. I didn't really start until, really, I didn't start until 68. That was my first season. I mean, my first, uh, you know, really semi was, semi volleyball was when I think I got my, first I got my single A with, by winning a single A tournament at Muscle Beach with a guy named Jeff Rohr. And then the following week I played in the, the, the Sorrento Beach Doubles Tournament and that with Greg Miller, who was my UCLA teammate indoors and we won the doubles at, uh, in the double-A tournament so then I became triple-A. All of a sudden I went from nothing to triple-A in two weeks. But uh, the, the guys that were the most dominant were um, certainly Von Hagen and Lang, Mike Bright, you know, who I think the world, but Mike Bright was a fabulous, fabulous athlete, great person and great role model. Uh, I, I really idolized Mike and uh, you know the Carter brothers, and even even J.B. Boardwell, and and uh, Hagen and Lang, of course, and Keith and Bernie Sawara, and but th- those those were the guys. Now, when you were at UCLA, there's that great photo of you, and then you can see Ernie passing. Tell us about your time at UCLA. Uh, you got to play with both Ernie Sawara and Keith Erickson. Um, well, yeah. Gosh, I mean, those two guys alone right now, there, I heard, just could put craters in the floor. Um, yeah, what can well, you tell us uh, about that time playing with them? The, the first, like, in 65, my first year indoors, uh, was uh, with Ernie. And we, uh, I had never, the first time I met Ernie, I had, I had not really many, but I had played against him in an indoor double at Santa Monica City College, and and he was playing with Butch May, <laughs> and I, I I was stunned. I I mean I I I was in awe. I I had never seen anybody hit hit the ball as hard as Ernie could hit it. I didn't even I had seen people hit it from you know maybe hit it higher, hit jump higher, or hit high, but never anybody hit the ball as explosively hard as he did. And as I got to join Ernie um, at UCLA, I mean, it was just it was just amazing how good he was. Because uh, uh, see, I I would have the one thing I regret. I, I wish I could have played with Ernie against you know other than. Uh, college competition. I would have loved to have him been on our '68 Olympic team, so I could have seen how he how he played against uh, the international players. Right. Uh, but in terms of the college players, I mean, it was you know it was just uh, he, he was like you know he was men among boys, and he hit the ball so hard. But and it wasn't you know it wasn't just his hitting. It was how far over the net he would get when he blocked. I mean, sometimes he would just, it seemed like he would just absolutely smother him. And uh, he was he was an amazing player. Ernie, Ernie, I think, was probably just for hitting. It was just, just for hitting. I think he was the hardest, hardest hitter I ever I ever played with. Now, Keith really just joined us for the end, end of the season. He just joined us for for the, the na- our first national championship, which I believe uh, in talking to Al, I was asking him the other day, I said, wasn't 65 your first national championships? And I think he confirmed that it was, so I was, I'm quite proud of that. But it wasn't an NCAA sport then. But Keith, 
Keith joined us at the national championships, and uh, and so we had here we're playing in a college, the college division of the USBBA, United States Volleyball Association National Championships. And we're playing against other colleges, including Santa Monica City College, which was the dominant force up to that time. And between Ernie and Keith, I mean, all we had to do was set them and the ball would go down. Set them, the ball would go down. You know, they almost, it was almost laughable how, how good they hit. And then I was in the background just passing everything, and I said, man, this is, this is easy. <laughs> <laughs> Putting your legendary passing skills to the test. Yeah, I, all I would do was pass, and then they would put the ball away, and they had great fun with the way. You had a nice bird's eye view at those, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, was, uh, I, I, I was thrilled to get to play with Keith because uh, I was such a fan of the way he would, uh, uh, their 64 national championship team when he played, you know, when he played on the, the, the John Wooden team that did the, that that uh, won the won the uh, NCAA's with the press. Mm-hmm. Remember the you know, the press. And Keith was the, the last the point man in the press, and we used to go to the game and I'd sit in the stands and we'd laugh because the game would be two and a half minutes into the game and UCLA was ahead sixteen to two with five turnovers, three steals by Keith, two blocks by Keith. You know, and they were just fantastic to watch how that team worked. But uh, Keith was just such an extraordinary, extraordinary athlete. I think Keith is the best all-around athlete I have ever known. I mean, um, between his basketball, his legendary basketball skill uh, career, and then what a what a, what a great volleyball player he was. And, uh, years later, uh, I got to we got to play golf together, and we played with a good friend, uh, a guy named Gene Fluger, at Boardwell, and we played uh, we played with Keith, and I played with I played with Keith on what he said was the his six month anniversary of picking up his first golf club, and he shot seventy six. <laughs> yeah. No. So I think you know that, and and, and Johnny. John Wooden, Coach Coach Wooden, said that Keith was the best athlete he ever coached. Yeah, I think along with so. Rafer, Rafer Johnson, Von Hagen's fond of reminding me of that. I think Coach Wooden said those two were the be- two best athletes he ever coached, and that's saying a lot considering all well, the I, I don't, when, when John Wooden Did John Wooden coach Rafer Johnson? Yeah, he did. Rafer was on that team, believe it or not, for maybe a year or so. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, I neither did that. I. Um, but yep, he he was for a brief time. And um, the other thing I heard about Keith, didn't he go to UCLA on a tennis scholarship? And I also heard no, he went, my story. I've always known is that he went there on a baseball. Yeah, that too. Or he and he was a great tennis player. But that he could have been if he went to the major leagues, he could have been an all-star shortstop. That's how how good he was. I mean, that's just. He was Bo Jackson before Bo Jackson, except more sports. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was there was so many funny stories when we uh, when Selznick first put together his Wiltsby Dippers. You remember that? Oh, I sure do. Yeah, but, but well, when he put together the first uh, Wiltsby Dippers, uh, so I got to meet Wilt for the first time, and I was in awe the first time, like everybody is. And then after a few practices, we started to kind of get friendly, and I was able to do a little trash talking about, you know, as, a, <laughs> as an athlete, 
I started to rag him a little bit about his free throw shooting and and, and stuff. And and then uh, uh, Wilt and so Keith was there, and we were all kind of kidding around it. And so Wilt says to me, uh, "So Larry, you you know you're halfway decent basketball player, right?" I think, "Yeah, yeah." <laughs> you know, and uh, he said, well, why don't you play one-on-one with Keith? I, I played play 10, uh, each basket counts one. Uh, I bet you won't get a shot off. And so I look at Will, I said, well, what do you mean I won't get a shot off? He said, you won't get a shot off. I said, you mean I won't even get, make a shot? No, you won't get a shot off. I said, oh, oh okay, I'll take that bet. So I start and keep gets in front of me and I start doing all these head fakes and I fake to the right and I fake to the left and Keith is just standing there stone faced and then I do a fake like I'm gonna drive and just try to do a stuff and he looks Keith looks at me and goes, What are you doing? So then I tried to drive left and I like and I he lets me drive right by him and as soon as I go up to the layup a hand goes right over my head, slaps the ball away. <laughs> then I try a hook shot, slaps the ball away. Then I try a fade, a 25-foot fadeaway, slaps the ball away. I said, okay, okay. You lost that bet, Larry. <laughs> that's, that's right. But that was, that was great fun. And it was great fun playing on those, those early big dippers. Those early big dippers. That once, 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 once funny story. Uh, the very first, the very first, the inaugural uh, match of the Wilkes Big Dippers was played in Santa Cruz. And uh, have I ever told you this story? I don't think so. Fire away. Okay. So, so Selznick got to be known to the rest to the rest of the guys. Had 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 this flyer printed up, and he sent it out to all the all these uh, club teams. Uh, across the country, advertising Wilkes Big Dippers four against, R four against your six, and uh, here's here's the terms. And he put Gene Selznick, um, team manager, with a phone number underneath it, and uh, uh, without telling me or Keith or anybody, and the phone number on the uh, on the letter at the bottom as under Gene Selznick, team manager, the phone number was the State Beach parking lot telephone. <laughs> I heard that that phone booth was pretty famous there. A, a guy it, it, was that. The, it, it was the State Beach public telephone number. And so, because anytime that phone book rang, it was for Selznick. So anybody, <laughs> all those guys who was, if, if the phone ever rang, no matter who it was, if somebody would pick up and say, hello, and they sell it there and they sell it for you. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's classic. That was Gene's personal cell phone or operator. Yeah, right? that's right. And so, so the first team, the, the first team that hooked us up is a club team up in Santa Cruz, California. So, Selznick uh, negotiates that they had to send us down uh, a deposit for our plane fare, our plane tickets, and a deposit in advance against the, uh, the, the salaries that we would require. And uh, Selznick used the money that he got to uh, go out and have some 
uniforms <laughs> with the number we're writing will speak different. So at any rate, we fly up to Santa Cruz. We arrive at the airport, and there's a guy from the newspaper. Uh, and he said, I'd like to interview you guys, and I'll take you to dinner. And we said, oh, great. So we, we uh, get in the car, and we go out to dinner, and uh, we sit down at this little uh, dinner in a restaurant, and uh, the, inter- the TV, I mean, the uh, reporter said, so, Mr. Selznick, it's a real honor to uh, have you. We'll speak Dipper's team here. Uh, it's uh, got a sold-out house. So uh, I'd like to get started here. So what's your record? <laughs> Keith and I look at each other, and Selznick says, uh, we're undefeated. <laughs> 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 and so, uh, uh, so Keith and I said, well, that's true. <laughs> all in all. Goes, no, no. <laughs> so, no, and the guy says a little bit later, he goes, I, I, I know you're undefeated. A little bit later in the interview, he goes, oh, uh, one more thing. A little bit, I know you're undefeated, but what is your actual record? And so Selby says, a 17 and all. And <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my God! So then, then he looked, and I, I look over Keith. I said, "Keith, can we get in trouble for this?" <laughs> <laughs> Not with Selznick. <laughs> and, so, and so we opened up the newspaper that morning, and and in, in the little Santa Cruz newspaper it says, "Will make difference. Put seventeen game win streak on the line." <laughs> <laughs> And you guys, so typical, eighteen so and all. Yeah. Now at that dinner, yeah. I heard Selznick's uh, enjoyed a nice meal. Always, um, did he have like soup and and uh, and like pie or dessert and all that other oh, fun stuff? I, I don't remember, but Sels was Sels was great. It was so much fun. It was always so much fun playing with him, and it would and Wilson Selznick became great friends. And what, one of the one of the funny stories that was playing with Wilt that I always got a kick out of telling was after about we had played in first Santa Cruz and it was a big success and then out of the blue we, it finds out that it got around and pretty soon some other school other teams were trying to uh, call us and we were starting to get some bookings and after about uh, probably the third or fourth match. Um, uh, well, I got I got to backtrack. When we played, we we always told the opponent that don't whatever you do because Wilt's just learning the game. Uh, he can play at the net, but he doesn't pass or he doesn't you know he, he doesn't dig or anything. So don't serve it at him. Serve it over there, but serve it. You know, Larry takes most of the serve, so just serve serve down the, somewhere down the middle or serve Keith, but don't serve it Wilt. Don't try to make him look bad. So. Uh, after about the third or fourth one of our matches with playing, they uh, they serve one right down the line at, at Wilt. And I step in right in front of Wilt and pass it over to Sells. And uh, we put it away. 
and Wilt says to me, Larry, that was my ball. <laughs> and so I said, Wilt, you know, I do the passing. He said, no, I'm, I'm going to do my own passing from now on. And so I look over at Selzik and I say, I say, Sel, Wilt wants to do his own passing now. And, and, and this, the game is going on, and this is all going on during the game. And Sel puts the rule. Willie, Rondo does the passing. <laughs> Will said, no, I'm going to do my own passing. So, we call timeout. We walk over the timeout, and Sal looks up at Wilt and says, okay, you want to do your own passing, right? Okay. Time in. Go back. The very next serve was right down the line to Wilt. He shanks it. He goes straight out of bounds, straight into the stands. And I look at him, and he looks at me, and Will says, that was your ball. <laughs> <laughs> just like him, just like his card playing and everything, right? Just, just so funny, so funny. What a character. I would have loved to pay money to see that or him and Vogie playing cards. I mean, those guys had, like, different decks and, you know, all sorts of stuff with their antics and yeah. cheating, I heard. yeah. Uh, getting back to your UCLA days, you uh, became real familiar with that weight room there. In fact, um, yep. Von Hagen told me that you guys used to work out with the decathlete there, Russ Hodge, and you guys could keep up with them on those leg workouts. But when it came to upper body... Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, yeah. well what, what happened, what the story behind my uh, background in the weight room was that uh, uh, in, in 1966, my second year at UCLA, I really started uh, developing a terrible problems. I mean, I, I, I just kept on landing on my left knee, landing on my left knee on all my hips, and uh, I just was so out of balance, I would hit, because I would contort in the air, and I would, as, as I would hit, I just came straight down on my left leg. And it, it developed such a knee problem that I, I couldn't even play by the end of the season. And that's why we ended up losing the championship that year. But uh, the the only, they wanted to give me cortisone and all that stuff. And uh, that I, I didn't like that idea. And so as I was talking to Ronnie, I, you know, Ronnie suggested that I really start to take up weights to strengthen my legs. And so that's when I started into the, in the weight room. And I started getting stronger and stronger, and then I realized I could see the impact. And uh, so as we, as I got through the end of 66 and started into the 1967 indoor season, I was full-fledged on, on a weight program by that time. And I had talked to a, a guy, uh, the UCLA water polo coach at that time. I can't remember his name. It was Bob. I can't remember his last name, but he was a very nice guy. And I had met him once and just counseled me. He says, I can take any athlete in any sport and dramatically improve their performance through weight training. And uh, I was just fascinated by that concept. And he said uh, just a very simple thing because I was asking him, well, how do you do that? He says you take every of the every one of the movements, every one of the fundamental skill movements that you do, and you do it with greater and greater resistance in the weight room. 
And I thought, my God, that makes total sense to me. So the skill movements in volleyball clearly at the top of the order, at, uh, right at the, the number one issue at that time was how high I could jump because I was only I was barely six foot tall, so I had to jump. So I just, that's when I started my my uh, weightlifting, my my deep squats and my jumping drills. And then the other one, uh, snapping, you know, being able to hit high and hard with full extension with your arm and snap your wrist at the top of the. Uh, at the top of the arm swing. And so I got on my knees against the, uh, pull with using the pulley system which they had on the side of the walls, I would get on my knees and stretch my arm up as high as I could and then just snap down with my wrist just as though I'm, you know, I'm hitting a volleyball, but I would snap down with more and more weight so that I really could, got to the point where I could just, you know, like a karate chop. And I would do, do that, and my my exercises were uh, were deep squats. And I at that time uh, I, I I started with like 250 pounds. And by the time I stopped training two and a half years later, prior to the the Olympics, I was doing over I was doing deep squats with over over 500 pounds. And I only weighed 165 pounds, so. That's how much strength I had in my in my lower leg, and then the jumping I did. I just jumped with with two fifty pound dumbbells, and I would do fifty consecutive jumps uh, in between uh, repetitions with uh, the D squats as well as the arm pulleys against the wall. And I would do my my workout would last you know about an hour and a half to two hours, and I would just do five repetitions of each one of those three things, those three uh, exercises, and I would do them over and over and over. And I did it four days a week, for because I had to rest, I did it four days a week for two and a half years, training for the Olympics. Mm-hmm. As I got better and better and better, I mean, I mean, as I got stronger, it just became dramatically easier to, uh, to play the game, to hit. So... Was, uh, wasn't there something in the hallway near UC, the UCLA uh, gym where you it was like about eleven feet high, like a, a one of the hallways or one of the ceilings or the overhangs, and you and Von Hagen would run and jump up and touch it mm-hmm. and stuff. Oh sure, oh everything. Ronnie used to love. Ronnie was a fanatic about jumping, just like I was, and uh, and uh, we would always have jumping contests and jumping measurements. And I mean, Ronnie was really. Uh, kind of one of my kind of one of my mentors, one of the people I really uh, had an admiration for because he had such love of the game and even more love of the game, he loved the part of practicing and getting better and preparing and training. It was just so natural to him and we would sit, you know, and I mean to, to have a conversation with somebody about squat techniques so you know you don't you don't you don't have that, but uh, with many people. But Ronnie would love to talk about it, and, and I've had so many conversations with Ronnie about different aspects of the game. Uh, just like the one that he always teases me about that he I can see on one of the questions that he had was because uh, I used to talk about that I, when I played against him on the beach and that how difficult it was for me to distinguish 
him uh, taking a full arm swing at the ball versus taking a full arm swing and then stopping right at the last second and just doing a little dink. I mean, it, it was an absolutely invisible maneuver. It was like a sleight of hand, I thought. Used to always drive me nuts that I could never get his dink. Yeah, that's what he told me. He chuckled when he brought that up. When I talked to him, he said, yeah, make sure you ask him how come he could never get my ding. And then he chuckled. Yeah, it well, makes me well, laugh. What was, well, what was worse, what was worse that one of the, one of the times, one of the, one of the tournaments, I mean, here we were, such great friends during the week, talking and playing on the beach and training together. And then on week, weekends when we were playing the tournaments, we were just these arch rivals, you know. And... Uh, I just remember one of the first times that I really thought that I had gotten a, a, a good visualization of, of what the key was to get that dink. You know, he goes up and he, opens, he closes his little knuckle like he was going to do his little dink. I dart to the net, he taps a little deep dink right over my head, you know, for a deep dink down the line. And I, I just remember snapping my head around and looking back at him as, Almost like a betrayal, you know? Like, yeah. How could you, how could you? I spent so much time trying to get this. And I just, he just would get a, just a little, tiny little grin on his face, you know? It was just like nobody else could see it, but I could see that he was just enjoying the joy. Enjoyed that deep dig probably more, more than any one of the chips. Just toying you know? with you. Just, yeah, he was, I mean, he, he was amazing, and especially for him to be such a good hitter, you know, with his bad arm, you know, because he couldn't straighten his arm, you know. Yeah, I think he, uh, when he was a kid, he jumped off the swing set with his Levi's on, and it, the swing got caught, and then he, he broke both of his arms, and the one didn't set right, I think, so he always had to pass with not a full extension yeah. with his, he had that slight bend in the arm. I, I, I never knew yeah. that. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah, he couldn't straighten out his arm, and and he didn't. It seemed that he didn't. But, I mean, the, the big difference between him uh, and and Lang in, in their hitting was that Ronnie had very little kind of wrist pronation. Like he didn't, you know, didn't turn sideways. He didn't cut it, or or you know, or kind of spin it off to a side. It was always just a straightforward wrist straight ahead type motion. And that's why he didn't. He wasn't nearly as successful playing indoors as he was playing on the beach, because he was a very predictable uh, hand movement. And uh, unlike Lang, who was, his arm was like he was on a, a swivel, you know, and you had no idea where the ball was going. So, anyway, I wanted to get to uh, Hammer and Hank, um, Henry Bergman. He, um, you know, for me as a fan of this sport, he's just like kind of this superhero. Uh, he and Shamalas were kind of those guys to me, like as far as like their hitting power and and um, and whatnot. And then, but um, what can you tell us about Henry and your first interaction with him and what it was like playing with him and whatever you can share uh, about him because you had a you know a, a team a partnership with him and, and saw things from a, a viewpoint that few if anyone else did so let's hear it yeah Henry uh, the first time I ever saw or, or, or met Henry was in a, I think it was a 1960 
67, it might have been late 66, but I, I think it was 1967, uh, in a, uh, a, a tournament down in Toronto Beach in which it was, it was a tournament where you could have one AAA player and one, uh, the other, and the other player had to be double A or less. So you couldn't have two AAA players. And so I got to play with Ronnie Snyder, who was my good buddy and as a AAA player. And I was, I had won a double, uh, I had won a, a couple of, I had won that single A tournament, but I had, uh, no, I hadn't even won a, uh, I hadn't even won those two tournaments yet, so I was still single A. Uh, and Harry was single A. And so Harry, uh, our first match was against Rich Raffaro and Henry Bird. Raffaro, aka the Playboy. I heard he. Uh... I. <laughs> I had seen Rich Raffaro play indoors, and he was a tremendous hitter. He could jump like crazy, and he was. A, snapped the ball, uh, Rich was a really, really good hitter, and he was a terrific player, and he was AAA at the time, and he had this, this, this single-A player named Henry Burton, uh, so, and I, uh, he, who was single-A, I was also single-A, and Ronnie Schneider was AAA, so we go to this, uh, down to the Serrano Beach Tournament, and we're warming up. And naturally, everybody's going to, you know, both teams are going to serve the other guy as a single-A player. So uh, I start out and I serve to Henry. And Henry just drills it cross-court. Just, you know, this sharp cross-court left-to-right angle. And so they serve me, and I, I put it down in front of Rich. And so Ronnie goes back, he serves Henry. And Henry just crushes her to skin. <laughs> and I say to Ron, my God, you know, let's try serving Raffaro. <laughs> Pick your poison. <laughs> Jeez. And Raffaro just crushes it. And I said, holy cow. And the match went on. And I, I really don't remember who, who won the match. But I just know that Henry and I did all the hitting. In the entire, uh, and we were the two single-A players. So Henry, after the game, Henry walks up to me real quietly and says, Hey, Larry. I say, uh, yeah, Henry, because that time I, I just met him. And he says, you want to play a tournament together? And I said, yeah, sure, sounds good. And he says, Okay. And walked away. <laughs> that was the end of the conversation. And I didn't see him again until at the beginning of the uh, six, 1968 indoor season. Because he and Rich Rivero played on the West Side, our West Side team, the community center team. Uh, we had two teams there. And those two guys played on the West Side team as I played on the West Side team. And so I got to know Henry more on an indoor basis. So we played indoors uh, and, and got to know each other a little bit. Uh, and then when the summer season started, that was the first, uh, our first matchup at East Beach was the first time that we had ever played doubles uh, on the same court ever. That was our first game. And, uh, you know, it, it was, to me, to have someone to be so robotic and so able to just pass that hit, I, I remember thinking after our we, 
won a couple of matches, I said, my God, this is really going to be easy because this guy is so good. <laughs> he passes, he sets, and he just, I mean, if they serve him, he just crushes the ball. And then sure enough, we just go, we just go right through the field and we end up playing against Ryan Ryan in the finals. And lo and behold, Henry cramps up. And he just, he just, you know, it drank too much coffee or something, but he, his legs completely cramped, and we end up losing in the finals, which really was upsetting to me. Right. And uh, uh, because he was in such, he was in such great shape, you know. But for whatever reason, it was hot, and and here we were against about to compete against Von Hagen and Lang, who were the kings of the beach, and. We lose to him because then the following week we ended up winning. So uh, that was our first win together. But Henry, 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 uh, if if you would play with somebody that you would say he doesn't say anything, uh, he doesn't complain, doesn't doesn't encourage, he doesn't, he just mechanically pass that kick, and he was just. You know, uh, almost like a savant, you know? It's like he could play volleyball. And uh, he, he was just, just, just wonderful. Just, and he could hit the ball so hard and sharply cross court, sharp, sharply, sharply left to right angle, really tight to the net, you know? Years, years later, I, I remember asking Ronnie Lang, you know, given how good, uh, Henry could hit the ball. Why did they have? Why did they serve Henry so much versus serving it to me? And he said it was one reason not not that you were a better hitter than he was, but that he was so consistent. He would hit the same damn angle every time. And we said we just figured we had a much better chance um, uh, digging him than than you if. Uh, you're hitting different angles. <laughs> yeah, he said but, he could uh, line up on Henry as hard as he hit it. You yeah. knew where it was going, and you could line up on him and and see if you could, you know, pop one up. That's yeah. fascinating. But, but uh, one time I remember after Rut, I mean, Henry had bounced one over the over the, you know, in the sand over on the East Beach on that front court. He bounced one up over the tree and <laughs> bounced one into the street one time. <laughs> It was crazy. It was crazy. And then Ronnie, I remember so one time, Ronnie, you, you know, I, I teased Von Hagen, and I said to him, after Henry had hit a, hit a ball, hit, just tucked one inside of him, when Ronnie was like six feet from the net, I remember looking at, walking up to the net and pointing to Ronnie. I said, Ronnie, you got to get in there. You can't get in all their space. You know, pointing to like three feet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And then Ronnie would laugh because some of the hits would be so tight. And then I remember what I remember one time saying to Henry, Henry, you know, you've got to come back and hit your left, the left line. You can't just. They, do you see where they're both playing when you when I set you? They're both they're, they're both like camped up in the in the front tiny little front right corner. You know, they're giving you three corners of the court, and you just keep hitting the same angle. And he said, well, I can't hit that line. I said, I, you can hit the line, come on. So sure enough, I said it, 
and he goes to hit the line and he hits it out. <laughs> out le- wide left and he looks at me really angry and goes, See? <laughs> okay, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Whatever angle you watch. <laughs> you win. Um, yeah, with, with, now outside of volleyball, what was Henry like? Did you ever go out for dinner or go see a movie with him, or was he just kind you know, of a, a, a recluse? Well, I mean, here's, here's an interesting story, and I think uh, you could talk to a psychologist about why somebody would do this. We played a tournament, and I believe it was a tournament down at San Diego, either Mission Bay or it might have been Laguna, or it might have been Laguna, I remember. But we have a 9 o'clock match, so he drives from Santa Barbara all the way down to Laguna and gets there by 9 o'clock to play. And then we have ended up having like a really late match at like 5 or 6 o'clock in the afternoon. And he finishes the match, and I say, you know, did you get a place up here to stay? And he goes, no, I'm driving home. I said, you're driving all the way home to Santa Barbara? So yeah, I'd like to sleep in my own bed. And so here we finish a match, and I said, but we have a 9 o'clock match. And he goes, okay. So it didn't matter to him. He wanted to sleep in his own bed. He drives, he drives all the way down there, playing the match, stay there all day, and then drive back up, all the way back up to Santa Barbara to sleep in his own bed, and then back, all the way back down by 9 o'clock for his next match. So, what is that, a four-hour drive, approximately, without traffic? Well, yeah, it was, it was something like that, you know, so, but I mean, the point was, was that he had, he had his regimen, you know, he had his routine, and that's what he liked, and he was and, and, and that's, that's why it was characteristic of his behavior on the court. You know, he liked to pass, set, hit. And he liked, I believe he, he loved the, the sequence of that, and he loved the feeling of that. But uh, he, he was very, very quiet-spoken. He, he, I, I don't remember him, him socializing. He, has very, he, had few, he, he was very well-liked by the people who knew him and who, let, who he let be his friends, very well liked because he was just very innocent, pure, very good guy. Uh, but he was a very simple guy, and he didn't like crowds. He didn't like people. Uh, or he, I don't mean he didn't like people. He didn't like being around people. I mean, he liked to stay by himself, and, and he was very quiet. You know, kind of behavior that you would associate with kind of a unique, independent uh, uh savant type person you know right absolutely now later on in life um you know it saddened me when i heard that he took his own life um Mm -hmm. yeah you know i heard stories that uh he went to a a therapist and they told him to you know basically forget about his past so he went and took all of his volleyball trophies that he ever won and i think he threw them in the garbage down at the beach or something like that yeah yeah, Look, that John true? Lee. Well, John Lee knows more about that. John Lee and Larry Milliken probably are the best authorities on Henry. Okay. But uh, I, it, in in later years, I heard that his, he became more and more of a recluse uh, and wanted no part of anything to do with volleyball. And uh, it, it, I mean, uh, 
for whatever demons he had, you know, who knows, who knows what causes people to to react and grow the way they do. Right. But uh, but he was uh, he was an absolute brilliant player, and he it was just, I mean, <clears throat> playing with him was just an absolute utter delight. He was uh, he was so talented and and such a good competitor. You know. Um, so, Ron Lang's not one to throw compliments around very frequently, but um, he says you and Henry were the absolute best team he ever played against. And in uh, 1968, you guys had some battles, none greater than the Manhattan Beach Open, where you guys played seven-plus hours of the most perfect volleyball for what I've heard from people that have seen it and been around since that's ever been seen. I mean, it was like you guys would go 25 minutes without scoring a point, just side right. out, side out, right. side out. So right. take us through that surreal tournament and um, what you recall about it in your own words, Larry. Okay. Uh, first of all, that uh, my recollection, my recollection of that match are, are, are are the impressions that I have from that match are, are very similar to Ronnie and Ronnie's. Is that it was past that hit, with no mistakes being made on either side. We could you could serve, you know, it, it didn't matter. We you would say, okay, let's try, let's try serving Von Hagen. You'd serve him for a half an hour and and get nothing. Okay, let's try serving Lang for a while. Serve him for a half an hour and get nothing. You know. And, and they would do the same with us. So Henry, they they were they were way more willing to just stay on Henry and try to dig that one angle than they did on me. So I mean, I, I believe that Henry got really the majority of the serves, but he just kept, I mean, he just one after another, pound away, pound away, and it was just kept on going. And the, at the, I, I recall where where um, the point just if. It, just to get one point seemed like it was a massive accomplishment, you know, because it was so hard to dig, so hard to, to get any point. And when you couldn't block, you, um, I mean, when you say when I say you couldn't block, by not being able to block over, it just re- dramatically reduced the efficiency of that particular uh, defensive maneuver, you know. I mean, because if I would go up and block Ronnie or Von Hagen in front of me, my whole point was just to try to funnel him to the left side of the court, just to try to keep him away from the right side of the court and just try to force him into Henry. And uh, yet Ronnie was, had, was so good at that deep dink, he could just dink, it, just dink it right down the line, right over my head, right down the line. And so I would stop digging that or try to fake block or come back. <coughs> Or try to go sharply, go sharply block court. So I mean, we're making one kind of a change of, of strategy after another, and they're all coming up empty. You know, I mean, you go for 20 minutes and the score is seven to six, and then another 20 minutes later, and now it's seven to eight to seven. <laughs> you know, I mean, I I know what those scores were. Those we, we were playing two out of three to eleven, and we ended up. Scores were like 21-19, 19-18. Uh, all three of the games were like that. And uh, uh, when they finally won the winner's bracket, that, that put us into the loser's bracket. 
uh, and we I think we ended up having to play, it was either Butch and Mike Bright or Butch and Dane Holtzman. I can't one of those two that we played in the final for the losers bracket after we lost to Ronnie and Ronnie, uh, who, by the way, we had played for, played played them for three and a half hours and to lose that match. And then we played in the finals of the losers bracket a couple of hours later, and we won the losers bracket game. That was one game to 15. Uh, and we won that in like 15 minutes. And then we go to start with Von Hagen and Lang again. And uh, so then we finally, after another three hours of play, uh, the same thing. And this time, this time we win the first, we, we win two out of three, and now we have to play one game to 15. Uh, and it was getting really dark, and it was something like, you know, it was like something like 7.30 and when we started. And so uh, when we got together at the net, I remember saying, you know, we can either, if, if we started, I want to finish, or I would rather not start. You know, and uh, they uh, they agreed. They said, "Okay, if we start it, we will finish." And then, sure enough, it was by eight fifteen or eight twenty. Here we're playing this one game to fifteen, and the score is five to four. <laughs> We've been playing for another hour on this last game, and as it really started getting dark, that's that's when the whole whole thing changed because then Ronnie Lang couldn't couldn't see it anymore. Did you know that he couldn't see so well in the dark and you knew you had the advantage then? Oh, hell yes. I mean, we had like, <laughs> Tell me how you really feel. Oh, the re- yeah, the reason I knew that is because I had played so many games against Ronnie Von Hagen and Lang down at Sorrento near the, you know, near the end of the day when it got dark and, uh, uh, that was the only time we could get, get any points off of him was because Ronnie would start to lose his efficiency. Um, but you got to remember when I was playing them again, when I was playing him in '68, it the previous two years of my excursions to the beach, I had probably lost to Von Hagen and Lang twenty-five times without ever beating them. So I mean, I had never beaten them <laughs> except going into that season, except for that one game where I played him in the wind with John Taylor, and John Taylor served all those aces. But uh, there, there was no question that the reason we were able to win that game was because Ronnie Lang couldn't see in the dark. And, uh, uh, you know, you could make, you, you, you know, one of the arguments would be, well, it was dark for both sides, but I don't buy that because it was, uh, uh, you know, the game was meant to be played so that you could see the damn ball. <laughs> and Ronnie couldn't see the ball anymore. So when I threw up those, those high boys, uh, and they just bounced, you know, they just let them bounce so they weren't sure who had it. And I remember one bounced down the middle. That's when uh, I, I remember saying to Henry, I think we got him now. And, uh, but it was because of the dark, playing in, playing in the dark. You know, I'm still, I, I you could see, Still tell Lang that I'm racked with guilt. I'm racked with guilt about having to having to do that. <laughs> when when that last point uh, came about, yeah. and you ended up winning. 
what was what was the feeling going through you when that occurred was it jubilation was it just relief was it empty i'm always curious like how Uh, how you felt after that you know you gotta remember that was kind of a long time ago but my it was as though uh it 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 was not i i don't remember it be jubilation as much as just shock that we had finally made it through it was Kind of the feeling, it, like if you were trapped, if you like, if you were trapped in a tunnel somewhere or, or, or in an underground hole or something, and you didn't know if you were going to get out, and you fun, so I don't, uh, suddenly were able to escape, and you were just overwhelmed with joy that you escaped. That that's more like it, you know, because that was such a big year. That 1968 Manhattan Open, that was such a big tournament because it was an Olympic year, and so many of the guys who were trying out for the Olympic Games were playing in that tournament. And uh, so, but, you know, I, I still to this day, and I think, you know, uh, I, I think of that as, as, as that match as a draw, you know? Right. It was, beautiful, it was beautifully played. It was beautifully played by great sports. I mean, they were just tremendous athletes. I mean, you know the esteem I hold both of those guys as athletes and as people. Um, you know, it, it was it was a, a great match where, where uh, you know, sometimes what I see nowadays when I see matches, not not to compare what we did with these events, but when you see a, a great basketball game, you know, the other night where it goes in the, you know, seventh game out of, uh, in the NBA championship and, and one team just guts it out and wins at the buzzer or a golf tournament or a you know, uh, both teams shoot 60, you know, I mean, both players shoot one at 66 and the other one 65 to win by a stroke. You know, those are the kind of, uh, those are the kind of comparisons that I put our, our win, our win. But it was, it was a great win for us, and uh, it was an honor to be able to take that trophy. The next weekend, or shortly a week or two after that, was there a tournament down in San Diego? I think, and you guys lost in the first round, and then you didn't finish, yeah. and you just and you decided yeah. to well, well, that, forfeit know, or like, something. Little, 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 little known about that is that I, I think it might have been Laguna or Corona, but uh, we, we, Harry and I were both exhausted. Yeah, and, and as you might imagine, and I we get down there to the tournament. And, um, you know, Henry says, I, I, I don't feel like playing. Uh, and, and I said, oh, my God, you know. I said, well, I don't either, but uh, it's yikes. And, but I looked at the first, the first round. Our first match was against a guy, uh, my college roommate, the guy I happened to be living with at the time was Mike, Mike McCann and a guy named Russ. Uh, I think it's not Russ Hodges, but it was Russ something else. But it was two close friends that I had from UCLA, and I had made a bet with my roommate Mike that uh, if we played them, that Henry and I could beat them without even hitting. You know, just joking around, just you know, having a beer, just joking around. And sure enough, that's who we drew the first round. So I said to Henry, "Let's let's play them, but we don't get to hit." And and we, we lose, you know. <laughs> and so, as much as I know Ronnie says, you know, we, we, we didn't have to, 
uh, we didn't have the stamina to, to carry it on and all that. That's true. We were exhausted, and we were, uh, you know, we didn't have the energy and the enthusiasm to carry on after that after that match. I think we played matches later. I'm not sure if we played any other tournaments later that year or not, late, later that summer. But uh, we may have. I think we did. But... Uh, but uh, that, we got we absolutely got trounced the very next week. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, and I think Von Hagen so, and Lang won that tournament, and Lang uh, takes pride in the fact that you know after that tough loss to you guys at Manhattan, they went down there and ground out a win. Oh yeah, they did. There's no question. There's no question. Henry and I were not, you know, not sure. I mean, what what I think is a comparable example. I mean, Henry Henry and I were. were did not answer the bell. There is no question. You know, bell rang, and we were we were not ready to play, and we and, and it showed. I remember one of the tournaments that Bobby Clem and I played. We were playing against uh, Matt Gage and Bill Inwally, and uh, I think it was down in Laguna Beach or Corona. I don't I don't remember, but it was in the finals. It was the week before the Manhattan Beach Open, so you could probably record that. But Bill, M, uh, Matt Gage, and, and, and M. Wally, they were unbelievable. Every ball they hit was straight down. It was just crushing. And Matt Gage, Matt Gage was hitting, it was like the sharpest angles that I'd seen. And M. Wally was the same, and he was really high-powered, high stressed out, and talking loud and just crushing the ball and I said to, I said to Bobby I said God I you know we're just going to have to we're just going to have to just try to try to just try to wait them out here because I mean I don't think they can keep playing at this level but they're crushing the ball and we've only got about a half an hour left of uh, daylight so if we can just <laughs> maybe we can just stall it out and play it you know play it tomorrow or something or play it but at any rate, Gage and M. Wally were just fantastic. And so we ended up getting to uh, where we said, okay, let's play. Uh, we finally finished this game and had one more game to 15 to play for the finals. And uh, we ended up agreeing that it was too dark to play and we would finish, we would finish off and play the finals of this tournament at the more Saturday morning of the Manhattan Beach Open, which was, might have been two weeks later or one week later. And so we agreed to do that, and M. Wally and Gage show up, and uh, we play the first game, and they're terrible. <laughs> they couldn't pass, they couldn't hit, and, and Bobby and I beat them in like 15 minutes, 10 minutes or something. But it just goes to show we as amateur athletes can't dial it up and play at the same level every time you try to try to play and, uh, and that was an example of a team that was playing spectacularly well one week and did not play anywhere near what they were playing a week or two weeks later which is what happened to Henry and I one of the beauties of Von Hagen and Lang I believe was that they were able to dial up the intensity intensity and play at such a high level for so many matches not only for many games and matches and tournaments, but how many years they played. So, anyway, but that, but that, but that, there, there was a side story to the, to the following, you know, the, 
the tournament right after we won the Manhattan Open. <laughs> this concludes part one of our two-part interview with Larry Rundle. Thanks for tuning in. Before I let you go, I'd like to give credit to the musicians that we utilize in our podcast. The opening song is from the band Sponge. The title of the track is Rainin', and it's off the album Rotting Pinata. The closing song that we use is from the band Magna Carta Cartel. Track title is called That It's Already Too Late, off the album Good Morning Restrained. Thanks, and stay tuned for part two. (laughs) 